Hi, I want to thank everyone for tuning into Flight Focus's very first episode. I am your host, Marissa, and this podcast is presented by Xnot. Overheating iPads in the cockpit is a very real fear for pilots who use their iPads as a main source of navigation. Xnot has found a way to mitigate this fear by creating iPad cooling cases designed specifically for pilots during mission critical tasks. And for those who may not know what Flight Focus is, it is a podcast about the experiences of people who shape the world of aviation and their unique path to where they are today. Each episode, we will feature a guest within the aviation industry, and they will discuss training and safety in relation to their job. Today on this first episode, we have Delaney. She is a jet pilot and certified flight instructor. And Delaney, I just want to thank you so much for being on our very first episode. Thank you so much, Marissa. I'm super excited to be here. I'm glad that our uh, schedule is aligned because I know yeah. with aviation it can be a little bit difficult with that. But yeah, I appreciate the invite. Yeah, of course. So I'm probably going to kick this off with one of the most common questions that you get. But what first sparked your interest in aviation? Sure. Uh, it's I like to tell people aviation sort of runs in my blood. My grandfather was in World War II. He was a bomber pilot and flew Wellingtons and Whitley's over the English Channel for the Canadian Royal Air Force. So my sister, who was also a pilot, and I always saw pictures of him. And we were like, okay, we want to do that. That sounds amazing. Uh, and my parents at first were sort of like, okay, what does this entail? Um, and eventually, you know, by the time we got to high school, we started taking lessons. And from there, it became sort of a family hobby. So my sister, who's a little bit older than I am, started first. And then my dad was like, oh, I like this too. This is really fun. He would sit in the back of her lessons and, and observe. And he was like, okay, I want to be a private pilot. So he got his license. And then after my dad, and by the time my sister was a flight instructor, I was working on my private pilot license. And my sister was my CFI, which was an awesome experience. Super, super fun. Uh, so it sort of began as a hobby and then transformed into a career later. Yeah, and I feel like it's a great bonding thing for your family as well, now that you all are into aviation. Yeah, it's been really cool. We, uh, my dad eventually bought into a warrior, and we have taken that warrior so many places. We've done, you know, jaunts out to the west, you know, uh, Park City, Lake Powell, Santa Fe, all sorts of really cool spots. So it, it is like a, a big family bonding experience. So Sounds amazing. So I know for your current job, you do fly jets. So which ones do you typically fly? Yes. So I got hired on as a SIC on the CJ1, CJ2, and CJ3. And for a lot of people listening, I'm sure they're like, well, that's a single pilot plane. How is she an SIC on that? We have a really cool program called a pilot development program, which is approved by the FAA, where we can have SICs on single pilot airplanes and they can still log that time. So it's a super cool experience, hired on recently. And yeah, I fly to Florida a lot of the times, been out to Telluride, Teterboro. So it's just exactly what I wanted in a career. So it's been really cool. That sounds amazing. So what are the main differences between those jets and do you usually switch between them or is there one that you stick with for the most part? Switch between them, the three of them. The CJ1 is a little bit smaller. 
whereas the CJ2 and the CJ3 are a little bit bigger. Um, but, you know, cockpit-wise, it looks the same. Um, CJ3 is a little bit more capable performance-wise, so it's generally favored by, by the CJ crew. Um, but yeah, there, there are a lot of similarities and they're, they're great planes. I mean, as a, for a first jet, I couldn't be happier. You know, I, I feel like it's, it's a great intro into the business jet world. Yeah. And it seems like you really enjoy your job, which is amazing, <laughs> but yeah. do you want to stay as a corporate pilot for the foreseeable future? Or is there any other path you would consider taking? I honestly, I have never really thought about the airlines. I think part of it is I've had more exposure to corporate. My sister's a corporate pilot out in Oakland for a Part 91 department out there. And, you know, I kind of saw how her career was and I was like, okay, I really like that. Um, plus, there's something to be said about flying to those little tiny middle of nowhere airports. That to me is like how you preserve the art of aviation. I, I've flown into bigger, you know, class Bravos like Boston Logan recently, and it's great. It's really cool. It's life affirming because you're at these massive airports. But I think with corporate, you're more connected to that general aviation route. And I think it helps pre preserve those skills that you, you learned back flying piston aircraft. So corporate for now, I think it's great. So. Yeah. That sounds amazing. So we're kind of moving a little bit into kind of the training aspects of both CFI and becoming a corporate pilot. So what does the training process look like typically for becoming a corporate pilot? It's different. I mean, you got to have hours and for anything, right? Yeah. Whether that's airlines or corporate. Um, and there are different ways to get those hours. So for me, my experience was all part 61. So it was mom and pop, you know, flight schools, uh, you know, during school, during college. And then after college, I was working an environmental planning job for a little bit to pay for instrument and commercial. So, you know, started private instrument commercial, multi-engine add-on, all part 61, and then self-studied for the CFI with an amazing instructor and one of my greatest friends, Shania Gordon, uh, shout out. And, so it took a long time. I like to tell people too, it it doesn't matter if you get everything done. Say you do a fast track program like ATP, you get everything done in like two years or you take seven years uh, like myself to finish everything. It's You're still getting to that goal of becoming a professional pilot and both ways are, you know, the end goal is there. So, yeah. so it's it's easy to get caught up in while it's taking you super long, but you learn so much throughout the way. Yeah, because I feel like everyone just wants to get to the end goal like as soon as possible. And I feel exactly. like <laughs> as pilots, we're so like, what's the next thing? You know what I mean? So it it is, we have to slow ourselves down. Like training, I during training, there were plenty of times I was like, okay, I'm so over this. But I look back and I remember people telling me, you're going to miss this. And I do miss it. I really do like and that's why I try to fly the warrior all the time is because I miss the the feelings of the small planes the maneuvers all the stuff you take for granted during training you know it, you, you got to preserve it yeah so what was probably the most difficult part of training for you 
This is a hot take, but <laughs> the commercial uh, certificate, I had a hard time with it. Um, I was working full time as an environmental planner, so I really could only, uh, you know, get flight lessons on the weekends. So, and as many pilots that are listening to this podcast right now know, you got to get those maneuvers down. It's all the physicality of those commercial maneuvers. Uh, they need, it needs to become like muscle memory and it wasn't becoming muscle memory. It took, it took much, much longer to finish that. I think because I was working full time. Um, so, you know, one weekend would pass, uh, say the weather was bad because I live in the Midwest. Of course, you know, that's a, a major component. Um, so maybe we couldn't have a lesson one weekend and now there's two weeks in between the lessons and I've forgotten how to do lazy eights. So it, it really did. It, it took longer than anticipated. Were there any like methods of studying or learning that you developed through training? Yes, there's this, uh, this really good method that I use. My, my instrument instructor taught me this one. Granted, you're not supposed to teach to the ACS, the Airman Certification Standards, but a really useful tool that he showed me was we were getting close to my instrument, Checkribe, he was like, okay, print out the ACS and then mark next to all of the like skills and knowledge required that you need to know for the, the Checkribe, mark next to it the associated FAR AIM reference so that say you're in your check ride and you have your ACS up because you're allowed to have your ACS up and they ask you a question and you're stumped. Well, let me look down. I can find it right here. I have the, the far aim reference here. I'm going to go to the far aim. So it kind of helps to organize your resources that way. Granted, you should have a lot of this stuff in your head, but it's so much information that of course you're going to miss a couple things. So just have those resources handy. And is there anything that you wish you knew prior to beginning your training? Hmm, that's a good question. I I wish I knew that I wanted to be a pilot early on in my training, because I, a professional pilot, I started, you know, dabbling in aviation in high school, and then I didn't get serious about my private pilot license until college. And you know, college, I was studying biology and environmental studies, thinking I would do something with environmental science and aviation. And I never considered a professional path, a professional pilot path after college. I just wasn't thinking about it. And I wish I had considered it sooner. I really wish that, you know, maybe I would have, I would have saved myself a lot of pain in college because studying biology was not fun by any means. I probably would have studied something like art um, or something a little bit more interesting and probably a little bit easier uh, if I knew that I just wanted to graduate and become a pilot. Yeah, and you mentioned the process took roughly about seven years. So is there anything you would have done differently in order to save up money or to progress more quickly? Yeah, I think the money thing not something I would do differently. Something that I'm happy I did do is work that environmental planning job to save money to pay for stuff. Cause it's like, you know, it was a desk job. I went in nine to five Monday through Friday and got my work done. And when I got my work done, I did my studying. And then all the while 
and making money to pay for flight training. So I recommend that to people if, uh, if they're able to do it, work that desk job, um, even for a little bit to pay for things. Cause it's, I mean, we all know it's astronomically expensive. Um, but time-wise, yeah, I, I wish I would have dedicated more time because, you know, when I was flight instructing full-time, I kept saying to people, you want to do it, you know, a couple times a week or else you're going to lose the skills and then you're going to pay more money. So ultimately, scheduling more flight lessons would have been a better idea so I didn't have to go back and uh, and relearn maneuvers. And were there any experiences as a CFI that stood out to you? I think the biggest takeaway from being a CFI was just the mix of people you interact with. It was really cool. I mean, it's such a good study into personality types <laughs> that it's eye-opening. Like we we think we're all so similar because we're pilots. And we are for that for that reason. We have a lot in common and you know, our passions are aligned. But there are so many different types of people interested in aviation. And I think that's really cool. It's it's really it's 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 a nice thing about this community. And are there any common mistakes that you saw with your students and anything that we can kind of watch out for for those who are going for their private pilot's license? A big thing that I saw was a lack of ground study. Um, there would be really, really good students that just got the maneuvers down pat and were completely comfortable with stalls and just, you know, masters of the aircraft by all means. But they didn't always take the time to study on the ground. And you can be the greatest pilot maneuver-wise, but if you don't have that basic, you know, ground knowledge down, then you're gonna have a really hard time. Um, so I'd always tell students for every one hour of a flight lesson in the air, you should be studying for three hours on the ground. And kind of moving a little bit into safety, was there anything that you've experienced or any near emergency situations? Yeah, so my sister and I, like I said, we flew our warrior out to Santa Fe. And the warrior was, its engine was a little bit beyond its useful life. So our performance charts became a little bit inaccurate. So we'd always add X percentage to the the values that we were given. So for runway lengths or you know takeoff um, data. So we were doing a takeoff out of Santa Fe in the summer, and so density altitude was was high. It was hot, um, but we decided to depart early to avoid any any issues with not getting off the ground. Um, did our performance calculations? Did everything right? took off, got 200 feet above ground level, and we look at our VSI and we are not climbing. And Santa Fe is, you know, for the Midwesterner, of course, there's terrain. And it was sort of a quick moment to be like, okay, we're not climbing anymore. Okay, thinking about it. Cause they say the, you know, on average takes like six seconds for a pilot to to fully assess the situation and then make a decision. Um, so, you know, after that, immediately called tower and was like, uh, we're not climbing, we're gonna need to return uh, into a downwind to come back to landing. And I look back at that and 
you know, it all happened so fast that we didn't declare an emergency. Uh, but it made me think after the fact, maybe it would have been a good idea to do that. And it, it really leads to a like a broader discussion about declaring an emergency that I think needs to be talked about. There are plenty of times where I haven't. And I know plenty of people who don't like to. And there's such a, like a negative connotation behind declaring an emergency when I think there shouldn't be. Um, because the worst thing that happens is they have fire rescue on the ground for you. You sign off some paperwork and you go home. You know, it's not like the FAA is going to be like, hey, what happened there? Unless, of course, there's an incident by all means. But I think we need a better, just looking back at my experiences, we need to be better about teaching pilots, please declare. Even if it seems like such a minor thing at the time, declare an emergency, you know, because then you have the extra support. Yeah, and it's just always better to be safe than to just kind of risk it and then something may happen down the line. Absolutely. I totally agree. So do you have any like personal rules and limits that you abide by to keep yourself safe? Staying proficient is a big one for me. I like to know everything I can about the plane that I'm flying, um, which is interesting. I mean, when you move from the, the piston world to the jet world, you are an expert on pistons. And if you're a CFI, you feel like you are up here, you know, you're at the top of your game, you know everything about that plane. But then you get to your first type rating and you're demoted. And it's sort of like, okay, now I need to reassess everything. Everything is completely new. How do I feel safe in this plane? And for me, it's just about, I mean, flight safety gives you a pilot training manual, which is super, super, um, it's full of amazing information. Um, so I try my best to sit down with that, you know, once a month and just review the systems. Cause I find that systems, they fade sometimes for me. So truthfully speaking, it's something that I have to do every month or else it kind of tends to go away. Uh, so staying proficient in that way is a big thing for me. Okay. So what methods can you employ to ensure safety while you begin your training if you're a new pilot? Hmm. Take your time. Um, remove the get there-itis. Uh, just because you want there to be a flight lesson doesn't mean that the conditions outside agree with that. And I know it's hard too, just speaking from, you know, when I was only flight training on weekends, get to the airport, and the weather's bad, but I want to fly. And I had to remind myself, like, we are not in charge of our destiny up there. You know, the weather is so important um, and is such a such a force that you don't want to mess with. So take your time, assess the situation, don't get get there itis, and you'll be good. Yeah. So kind of still for new pilots. So getting in the beginning stages of their career and analyzing their career options, what factors may they not be aware of that could factor into the decision-making process that you wish you knew prior to joining? Interesting question. Factors that play into the decision-making process as a professional pilot or as a pilot? Yeah, because there is research that you could do online, but then it just never compares to the real thing when you're there. 
So is there anything that you kind of wish you knew beforehand? Yeah, I think it kind of goes with the question, the answer that I had last. It's the get there itis follows you. Um, you know, there are plenty of times as a professional jet pilot where you get get home itis, where you're on the road and you're like, okay, yeah, we can make this trip, but you have to slow yourself down and be like, well, no, does this abide by our standard operating procedures? Does this abide by my personal minimums, by the captain's personal minimums? It it follows you to an interesting degree, which I didn't expect. So just, I guess my advice to others would be, be prepared to have a little bit of that sometimes and to put it away and put the, you know, common sense cap on and and make the safe decision. And what would you say to people looking to get into aviation? Do it. Um, <laughs> don't doubt it. I know that financially it is a massive burden to take on, but I can't tell you. I Coming from someone who worked a desk job for two years, this is the coolest job in the world. It really is. Like, I, I have no complaints. Um, of course, I liked my job before, but it, this, it couldn't be better. And even becoming a private pilot, it just, it opens up your world so much. And I think one of the greatest things, too, that you can gain from it is it translates over to other parts of your life. So the studying skills, the determination, the, the, the interests, it, it sort of allows you to use that in other parts of your life, whether that be your work life, your family life. It just, it gives you grit. It really, it's, it's very powerful. Okay. And I think the last question is, where can people find you on social media if they have any questions or they just want to connect? You can find me at, at Pilot Delaney on Instagram. And please do. I, I love to answer all questions aviation related and help people get into the industry because it's the best. <laughs> okay. Well, I think that concludes our first episode of Flight Focus. And I just want to thank you so much, Delaney, for joining us on the first podcast. Of course. Thank you so much, Marissa. I really, really appreciate it. We intend on releasing an episode a month, but this may change down the line. So to stay up to date on all the news and releases of new products and new episodes of the podcast, be sure to follow us on Instagram at xnotsolutions.